0: Hey Springville, it's June and it's the weather's great and this month is Father's Day month and we're going to spend some time talking about how Jesus models manhood to us. But before we do that, let's finish our series in Thessalonians. There's this old, old story that preachers uh, tell from time to time of, uh, of a couple that had twin boys. And those boys couldn't be any different. One son was as pessimistic as anybody you'd ever meet. Everything was wrong with everything. Everything had a problem and he always found it and complained incessantly. While the other son was as optimistic as anybody could be, never a problem, never something that they couldn't overcome or that he couldn't overcome, and he was always upbeat about everything. The parents couldn't take it anymore, and finally they said, we've got to teach our pessimistic son how to be more optimistic, and I think the way to do it is on their eighth birthday, we're going to give him everything good, and we're going to give the optimistic son something that's worthless, and then watch and see if that affects him. So they did that. They crowded the pessimistic son's room with every toy you could think of, any toy that an eight-year-old would love was stuffed into that room. And then in the optimistic son's room, they took a tarp, laid it out, got some horse manure and put it in the middle of the tarp. After the kids came home from school, they had their supper, their birthday cake. And the parents said, now we have special gifts for each of you and they're up in your room. And the boys ran up into their rooms and they heard the door shut. And the parents said, well, we should go up and see what's happening. And first they went to the pessimistic son. They opened the door, and there he was looking at all these gifts. And he started to complain, well, the color wasn't right. And there were some gifts he would like that weren't there. And some of them were the wrong size. And some of them would probably break before he got to use them. And his parents couldn't believe. Here he is living in a, a toy paradise And he's just seeing the negative and they thought, well, he's never going to change. So they shut the door. And then they asked, looked at each other and asked themselves, should we even bother going to the other son's room? I mean, we've treated him so badly. When all of a sudden his door flew open and the optimistic twin came flying out. He hugged his mom and he hugged his dad and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they looked at each other and said, why in the world does this kid have such a positive attitude? And the kid said, well, if there's horse manure in my room, that means there's a pony around here somewhere. And you know that what john maxwell says about that is attitude determines altitude you know the way we look at life determines how we go through life and if we've got a positive attitude we'll climb heights you know for a person with a a great attitude it doesn't matter what problems they face doesn't matter what comes their way they may struggle but they'll get through it and they'll fly high in life see attitude determines altitude But a pessimistic person with a bad attitude, it doesn't matter how small the problem is, it'll stop them in their tracks, and it'll change them as a person. John Maxwell's right. Attitude does determine your altitude. And I think that's a great summary of how Paul chooses to close out this letter that he has been writing to the Thessalonians, who are facing persecution, a trial, a difficulty that's painful. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll start at verse 12. And he says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters. Now, see, attitude determines altitude. And Paul, in this final section, is going to talk about the attitude of the Thessalonians. And he's going to start with our outward attitude, how we treat and respond to and act toward uh, other people. And he starts, he gets two, two categories for this. One, leaders and then other brothers and sisters around us. So he starts by saying, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge. Now the term acknowledge means to respect. Just like a player would acknowledge a coach's direction or a student would acknowledge a teacher's teaching. There's a level of, yeah, I know you have authority, you have uh, responsibility, uh, and I, I respect you for that, and I'm going to listen to you. That's the kind of meaning behind that word. And he says, acknowledge or respect, those who work hard among you. The first thing he says about leaders, they work hard among you. Now, uh, i I, I got to say, I kind of agree with Paul on this. Uh, being a leader in a church uh, uh, is hard. It's There's a lot of hard work that goes into it mentally, uh, emotionally, physically, and especially spiritually. And you are the front of every spiritual attack that happens in the church. And Satan's at work constantly. Mm-hmm and challenging and bringing tests. And God has to mold and break you so that you can be a means to teach other people because we're not perfect either. And so <laughs> you work hard. It's just a lot of hard work uh, being a leader in a church. And not only that, he said, they work hard among you, but they care for you in the Lord. Like our, our goal in this is we don't do this for us. We do it so that you will grow, that you will grow in your faith, that Jesus will we'll be pleased because you're drawing closer to him. We're serving you to serve him. So we work hard, we care for you in the Lord, and we admonish you. Now, that this is one of the hardest, admonish means to correct. This is one of the hardest roles in leadership, because part of leadership and part of preaching is to admonish, to at times say to you, hey, you're doing wrong, you need to stop doing wrong, and you need to start doing what is right. And very few of us really enjoy being admonished. Let's admit it, we don't like it. We kind of get our backs up when somebody admonishes and Paul says, hey, respect them for There's times when they have to admonish you. So take that instruction and and respect the leaders that are, are among you. I heard a, a speaker once say, describe that whole scenario like this. is like every one of us in an organization, every one of us in the church, walks around metaphorically with two buckets in our hand. One bucket has water, one bucket has gas and so when we come along somebody who's discontent or divisive or negative, they're kind of starting a little fire of discontentment in the body, we can make one of two choices. One we can pour water on it, in other words we put it out and we pour water on negativity like that by challenging them uh, to go talk to the leader that they're struggling with or or to change their attitude or to show them from scripture what they're thinking is wrong or to help them understand why leaders might make the decisions that they make so that's the way we pour water on or we can pour gas on it yeah they are you know they are we join them in their negativity or don't explain things or don't challenge them to go deal with it but just to complain about it and, and when we respect leaders in our midst, what we are really called to do is pour water on discontentment and division. Now by that, I don't mean you never challenge leaders in the decisions they make or the attitudes they have. I mean, that's part of respecting leaders. When you pe- treat people with respect, you challenge them at times with the decisions they make or the attitudes they have or the way that they're doing things, but you do it in such a way that is respectful because you know that those leaders are there working hard, They're serving you, and there are times when they have to admonish you, and so treat them with respect. And so Paul says the first thing about an attitude that gives us altitude is we treat the leadership God has put in our lives with respect. But we also have an attitude toward our brothers and sisters around us. Look further in what Paul says. So Paul says in verse 14, And we urge you, brothers and sisters. Now, stop here. Who is he talking to? So because of our Canadian culture, we often miss what he's going to say in here. But first I want you to notice, who's he talking to? Brothers and sisters, he's talking to the whole church. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else. Now stop and think of it. Who did he tell to do that? See, normally what we think of is, all well, the leaders are supposed to deal with, you know, the disruptive and problem people, and then we pay the leaders to help the weak and, and, you know, the disheartened, and that's their job. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul says that you, you have equal onus in this body, and your attitude should be, I'm responsible for what I see that happens around me to respond in a way that's honoring to God and helpful to those people. I had a friend that was at a church and uh, in that church the leadership was leading the church through a transition and there was one particular individual that was really struggling with the decisions and the direction. They didn't like it and they didn't want to go that way. And they went, of course, uh, rather than going to the leaders and expressing his point of view, he decided the way he was going to deal with it and get his way was he was going to go around to people's houses and tell them how bad the leadership was and what they were doing wrong. And, and so he would go and show up at people's houses uninvited, say hello. He was a very affable type of person. And then soon would begin to talk about what was going on and the decisions the leaders were making. And, and some of the stuff he said was true and a lot of it was taken out of context and some of it was outright lies. And he was doing this from house to house to house to house and causing discontent and division within the whole body. And here's the problem, not only was he doing wrong, but of course the elders didn't know anything about this, nobody told them, and nobody confronted him on his actions. Now they would complain to one another about what he was doing, they knew it was wrong, but they felt that that was the elders' job, that they, the elders should be fix, correcting him, but of course the elders didn't know about it. And so nobody stood up, nobody said anything, nobody confronted him until finally he had done it so many places. That it, had, it came out into the open and then the elders had to deal with it. But there was so much hurt and pain in the body because people didn't do what Paul says here. You take the responsibility. So when you see somebody who's being idle or disruptive, they're not walking ahead in their faith or they're causing trouble. You need to deal with that. He says that you need to warn them. You need to. Don't wait for the leaders to do it. You do it. You have to have an attitude that says, I'm responsible. I'm an owner in this church, and I'm going to act like owner. I'm going to take responsibility for it. And when you see those who are disheartened, and they're struggling and they feel like they're going to quit, don't, don't wait for a pastor or an elder to figure it out. You step up and you encourage them and you come alongside them, you pray with them. Be an owner. This is your church, Paul says. To have that attitude where you're taking responsibility for it. And then when you see somebody who's weak, they're struggling in their faith, they're struggling with an issue, they don't know how to deal with it, they can't get over it, Paul says, the weak are those that that haven't attained to a level of truth and freedom in their life. You help them walk through it. Don't just cast them aside. Don't just forget about them. You step in and help them walk through it. And then he says, be patient with everybody. (laughs) We all have our stuff and we're all going to bring stuff to the body. And Paul says, "Just, just get used to it. You're going to have to warn some, encourage some and help others. And make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other. So when you see somebody doing wrong, you stand up. So that's what Paul's saying. The the attitude that's going to bring altitude to our church is not, well, that's the leader's job. The attitude that's going to bring altitude and make Springvale a great church is when we take ownership for what we see happening around us. And we do what God would call us to do. Now, by the way, Springville, um, you really rock when it comes to this. Uh, This church has a long history uh, of being a unified, strong, respecting of leader church. Now, I think a lot of that has to do with the prayers that people pray for unity for this church, and that's one of the most common prayer requests I hear, but it's also because uh, you respect your leaders and you deal with things. Now, everybody's welcome at Springvale, but, but there is a history of people, challenging people to say, I don't think what you're doing is right and you need to stop it. And so I want to commend wherever that, uh, however that came in the DNA of Springvale, I want to commend those of you that have established that because I think that's one of the key reasons that Springvale has such unity. So well done Springvale, that's just a, a real strength and a joy for us in leadership in this church. Now, after dealing with our outward attitude, how we look and act toward leaders and others, Paul then turns inward in the next passage. Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Why do you think Paul had to write, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks always? It's not because that's natural to us. It's not like that's our default setting when we come into difficulty and trial. Remember, the people he's writing to are under persecution. They're being attacked for their faith. I think it's because these are not uh, the default setting we have in. a our heart when we get into trouble or struggle we have to work on these in fact he says this is god's will for you in christ jesus well why would it be god's will that i have a great attitude inwardly uh, when i get into difficult times sometimes i just want to sulk or i want to be mad i want to be angry i want to lash out i mean that's my default setting why would i have to be like this and how in the world am i supposed to be like that Morris Roberts said this, God-sent afflictions have a health-giving effect upon the soul because they are the medicine used to purge the soul of self-centeredness in this world's vanities. Stop and think about that. God-sent afflictions have a health-giving effect upon the soul. They're God's way of purging our our soul of its self-centeredness. Spurgeon wrote, The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our heart upon the black horse of affliction." Now think about what this means for us. These words Paul says, I want your attitude, your inward attitude to be like this. I want you to rejoice, I want you to pray, I want you to give thanks. Well think about what that means for us in the test that we're in right now, COVID. In the middle of COVID, I want you rejoicing, and praying and giving thanks. In the middle of your marriage breakdown, in the middle of your struggle with your kids, in the middle of your financial problems, in the middle of the attack that's against you, I want you to, to rejoice in what God is doing. I want you to pray for those that are attacking or those that are against you, or pray for other people as well as yourself. I, I want you to give thanks to God for what He's doing in your life. Is that the kind of attitude that you're carrying with you in the current trial that you're in? It's not the kind of attitude I default to, I can tell you that. But my attitude determines my altitude. So if I want to grow from these God-sent afflictions and, and have health in my soul, I have to have the right attitude, the inward attitude toward these things. So what is it you need to start giving thanks for? What is it you need to... Who is it you need to pray for and how is it you need to rejoice even though it's the last thing you feel like doing? See, our attitude will determine our altitude in our trial. So we've seen Paul uh, talk about the attitude that we need to have outwardly toward our leaders, toward other people. And then he start talking about our attitude we should have inwardly when we're in the middle of trial or difficulty, that we should learn to develop this attitude. And then finally, he now turns upward, an attitude we should have toward God. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Do not quench the Spirit. Did you know you could quench the Spirit? Quench is like to put out, like quench a thirst, get rid of it. Or quench a fire, kill it. Did you know that you could quench the work of the Spirit in you? Paul says you can, Paul says I can. How do you do that? He said, don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test all of them, hold on to what is good, and reject every kind of evil. We quench the Holy Spirit, we quench God, by treating prophecies with contempt. I think we need to dig a little bit into this to understand what he was saying. Well, I think the first thing we need to understand is what is prophecy. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, Paul's writing to the church, and he says, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, meaning when you come together to worship, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So the term Paul uses here, like the worship services that Paul's describing in first century church were very different from ours. They didn't have somebody that was leading worship or giving announcements or preaching like I'm doing now. And they certainly didn't have anybody recording them and putting them over the Internet. Well, that's not to say that there's anything wrong with what we're doing, it's just to say that culture changed and the way that they did their worship services was just a little different than ours. And so instead of having somebody up front and all planned out, they would plan ahead of time uh, when they were coming to worship and people would think about and pray about and look for a hymn that they could encourage people to sing or uh, something from scripture that they could teach or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. And revelation is exactly that. It's another name for prophecy. It's it's a revelation from God, something God gives someone that they are to share with the church or to share with another person. So then how do you treat this revelation, this prophecy, how does a person treat it with contempt? Well, let's look at what he says further on in the chapter. Paul writes in chapter 14, verse 29 of Corinthians, Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation or prophecy comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. In other words, we shouldn't be out of control this way. For God is not the God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And verse 39, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So this is what the problem was here. Uh, The people, there was two things. They weren't weighing the prophecies, and they were in confusion and out of order. By weighing, it's what Paul said in Thessalonians, you need to test them. You need to determine whether or not this is truly from God. Just because somebody stands up and says, oh, I have a word from God to you, or I have a prophecy, or just because somebody's preaching the Bible, doesn't mean what they're saying aligns with the truth of the Bible, or doesn't mean what they're saying comes from God, or they may be saying what they think is true, they just don't understand it fully. And so it needs to be weighed, it needs to be tested in order to make sure that what is being said is actually from God. And when you you quench the Spirit, when you don't weigh these prophecies or teaching and don't align it with Scripture and ensure that it's really what God once said. The other way that they were causing disorder and quenching the Spirit was it was more about them getting up and having their peace and being in the limelight than it was about teaching and encouraging the body. So, so they were fighting with one another and interrupting one another so they could have their peace, they could have their say, they could be the big man on the block. And Paul was saying, stop it. Do this in order so that there's not confusion because you're quenching the Spirit. The Spirit wants to move through the teaching of the Word of God and the prophecies, but you're blocking the Spirit from doing what He wants to do. I got to thinking about uh, what it means to quench the spirit. I've been watching on, uh, I think it's Prime, uh, the Eco Challenge race in Fiji. It was done, I think, last year or year and a half ago. It's the world's toughest race is the way it's been. And so all the contestants and teams of four, they all uh, go uh, over a multi-hundred kilometer racetrack, and they'll bike, they'll paddle they'll run, they'll navigate through jungle, try to hike through jungle, they'll uh, mountain bike, they'll paddle board, and they do all these different sections of the race in different ways, climbing a waterfall. uh, And um, the key is there's no signs telling them, go this way, here's this way. They are just given a map with coordinates and a compass. And one of them or two of them have to navigate the team to the next checkpoint and if they don't navigate well they miss the checkpoint they totally get their team out of sync and they're going the wrong direction and so if a navigator gives the people the wrong directions they're not giving them right directions they'll lead the team out of the path that they should be in and they'll start working against the chances of the team not only to finish well but even to finish and i got thinking that's kind of like what paul's saying here that we quench the spirit when we allow teaching that is not of God in our church, so when, when we allow somebody to speak and they're not speaking the word of God, they might be using the Bible, but they're not really preaching the message of it, or we listen to podcasts, or we read books, or we watch uh, speakers, or we listen to other people tell us stuff. When, if, if we do not test and weigh what we are receiving from other people, then we can be given the wrong direction and start moving off on the wrong direction. And we'll be going in the opposite direction that the Holy Spirit wants to work in our life. And we'll be putting out the work, the fire of the Holy Spirit, In us in us as individuals and in us as a church we have to be listening for the voice of God and that's why Paul says I want you to weigh what people say and make sure it's aligned with Scripture and the other thing I don't want this to be about you and your giftedness and you getting attention this is about feeding people and helping them understand the work of God in their life and to grow and Paul says you've been quenching the Spirit And so what he tells them to do is test the prophecies, test what you're learning, hold on to what is good and get rid of what it isn't. Don't let false teaching in your life or in your church because it will quench the movement and the work of the Holy Spirit in you and in the church. So here's the attitude that Paul wants us to have upward. And that is, when I know that God has spoken, I obey. See, this is so important for Paul to say we need to know when God is speaking to us because his implication is we would obey it. We will do what we are called to do. So if God says to me, "Uh, you need to end that relationship. It's toxic. It's negative. It's pulling you down. I need to end that relationship. Or if God says, you need to stop dating that person because they're not a follower of Jesus and you need to obey and, and, and do what He says. If God says you need to reach out to your My Four and begin to and intercede for them and invest in them and then invite them, well then that's what we have to do. If God says you need to give your money, then we need to give our money. If God says you need to stop that attitude that you have, well then we need to stop the attitude that He puts His finger on. You see, the attitude that God wants us to have And the attitude that will give us a lot of altitude as a church is, when God speaks, we obey. When God speaks, we obey. That's the attitude that determines our altitude as a church and as Christians who want to draw closer to God. You know, every one of us is... uh, like this bottle of water, and our attitudes are in the inside. And when we're shaken, what comes out is what's on the inside. You see, whatever's in you, whatever attitude you carry, your attitude outwardly, your attitude toward leaders, your attitude about how you treat them, our attitude toward other people, Do you care about them, or do you get involved? Do you step in, like Paul says, or do you just do what's best for you? Your attitude inwardly, uh, when you're in trial or difficulty, uh, how you respond. Your attitude toward God and His Word and what He calls you to. Whenever shaking comes, whenever testing comes, what's in you comes out. And so what's in you? You know, Paul's been writing this whole book about this test of COVID and helping the people that he's writing to, the Thessalonians, to overcome the test. And we've been in a test. And what attitude are you carrying with you right now in your test? What's in you when you're lonely, when you, don't, you feel like nobody cares, you're struggling with the way things are working out, you hate the decisions the government are making, you want to meet with people but you can't. Uh, how, what's coming out of you? Because what's in you is coming out. And, pa- and Paul says, his final thing is, your altitude, your attitude will determine your altitude. And we don't magically get right attitudes. We have to ask God to create them in us and work with Him to change. But if you're not willing to change, nothing's going to change on the inside. Father, we've been going through this whole book, trying to learn how to face the tests that we face and the struggles that we face in a way that will honor you and bring healthy growth to us. So in our test, in this COVID test, God, would you create in us the right attitudes, the right spirit toward others, Inwardly in ourself and toward you. In Jesus' name I pray.